quickly. Um, I'm, we're, we're in First Peter, so this is like fresh in my mind. I've been thinking about it for weeks because of some sermons we did down there. But he, in 2.12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, Peter is working up this idea. As a matter of fact, we're calling our series um, Apologetics for the Resident Alien. The idea that we live in a culture that's really not ours from a biblical point of view. We metaphorically are aliens. We're sojourners. We're from another culture. We're ambassadors to this culture. And the church is being persecuted. And he's trying to create an apologetic. And the apologetic is not five reasons why God exists. The apologetic is the church and how the church behaves in that culture as a witness to even those that hate them. And that's the context. The issue is a corporate witness. In that context, that same exact context, is where he says in 1 Peter, um, uh, again, 2, 9, is you are a chosen race, he's speaking of the church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now, I could go through 20 verses right now that iterate the same thing, that we are called to live in such a way to glorify the Father. Now, my premise here, my thesis, is that this is a corporate thing, not an individual thing. Now, we, in that passage, we're, we're, the church is called to good deeds. Now, somebody in my missional community basically asked the question as we go over the sermons, well, Mike, you know, there's a lot of things I do that people don't even know about. You know, and isn't that, why do we have to do it like as a group or whatever? Why does the church have to be perceived that way? You know, I just want to say something too, and it just kind of hit me, but I know of two or three reports. I think one's when I was here, and, and since I've been here, uh, I believe somebody from the mayor's office, and you, I, I think Michael could tell, I, I remember one came from you, uh, I, um, I think um, I think it was Brian Nelson. We were in meetings, in, just in city meetings over, over time. And I think the pr- most proudest thing of Harambe that I am, and one is after I left, and it really has a lot to do with what you're doing in the community, but both situations were whoever it was, government officials, one person in particular turned to the person in Harambe and says, why is everything good in Renton happening in Harambe? To me, that's, that's, that's I, I said, chills up my spine when I hear that. And that was something I heard after I left. This is what the church should be. The church is corporately known. Harambe is a place. So I remember when we started and people were like, well, what's Harambe and so on? It came a place where we could literally go, it's at Harambe. We didn't have to go, well, it's kind of a church on thir- you know, 3rd Street, and it's like, you know, you can figure it out. You know, it, it became a place because this place had after-school programs. It had things that were giving to the community. I remember one of the police officers saying that you guys contributed to the gang violence issues that were here in the early 2000s. See, that just, that's it's a beautiful thing for me to hear that and continue to hear that I don't care if Harambe is ever a megachurch. That is a megachurch. That's what church is about. Not how big you are, not how much of a celebrity your pastor is, but how much that church is known for loving the people around them. That is the witness of the church. That's where Peter's at. And so this person goes, Mike, you know, I do things as an individual. That's great you do that. That makes you human. That's all that makes you is human. To do good deeds, to help somebody at work or whatever, is just a human thing. You're not that special to do that. It doesn't make you special because you helped somebody today. And I think 
somehow we, we have an idea in our own self that if I help someone, I'll feel good about myself. So your motivations are whack, even though you're doing some pretty good things. And I started thinking about this when, I, when they asked me that. It took me three weeks to really think about it. Um, these passages aren't calling us to personal secret deeds. Um, matter of fact, you can turn to a couple places. Matthew 6, and I'm getting into the passage, but I think this is very important to the passage. So this is where I'm going, because this dealing is a corporate issue, not a personal issue. Uh, Matthew 6. Now, Jesus is one of two things. He's either a truth teller in sound mind, or he's a schizophrenic. Okay, so I'll, just, I'll show you his schizophrenia right here. Okay, 6. Um, go to 5. It's, um, you're looking at chapter 5. Um, it is, let me see, 17. It's wrong. Okay. So, Jesus says in 13, 5, 13, you're the salt of the earth. The salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. Then he goes into 14, you are the light of the world. A city, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and good glory to the fathers in heaven. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what he says. Shine your light, make it known. Except 6 says... Beware of practicing your righteousness before people in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he basically goes on and calls you a Pharisee. So is Jesus schizophrenic in the same sermon saying, shine your light on your good deeds and don't do it because it makes you a Pharisee? I will tell you why he's not schizophrenic. He is talking to the church in one and the person in the other. The church is there to shine the light of what they're doing because it's just who they are. Harambe can't go, you know, we're going to individually just kind of help people at renting and so on. And it just is. You don't have to put a sign outside and go, look at what we're doing. Because people take notice of a corporate understanding of those good deeds. But when Jesus says, when you do it individually, just do it because you're supposed to do it. Just do it. And not, not boast about it. Because most of our motivation, if we are honest about it, is we're doing it for our feeling good about ourselves. And Jesus says, that's a hard issue. That's a problem. So you look at this passage in that light. I think about my wife's family, Donna, who, which is pretty much all agnostics and, um, and atheists to this day. Still are, most of them. They, as a family, do a lot of incredible things. Her dad... Uh, fed the homeless on a regular basis. The mom takes people, uh, sick people from uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, down to Boston, the Boston hospitals. Um, uh, her, her brother is the president of Easter Seals in the, all of New England. Um, they do great stuff. And so Christians, when, when you look at it and go, look at, look at the good things I do, it's like, well, that's good. You, you, you and an atheist are doing a pretty good job there. It's great. Okay? Because Christianity has this weird sense that somehow we do good things and the rest of the world doesn't. And that's a jacked understanding of what, what the world is about. I've run into so many people. I used to love to take people to, to um, Buddhist lands, and particularly in Nepal where we used to go, and they would see Buddhists acting with so much compassion and love, they were convicted by it. Don't think that somehow you're more loving or do better deeds than somebody else because you're a Christian. That is not, a, that is actually it infuriates non-believers. And they look at you as a self-righteous person, which is why Jesus says, shut up. If you can do something good, just do it. 
But when the church does it corporately, it is completely different. Um, first of all, they don't necessarily have to say anything about it. And I, I want to say this, too. I, you know, I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It's happened to me in, at times, and it's kind of convicting in a way. Let's say that you have a bunch of friends. They're all non-believers, and you're, you've done a lot of things. Like, I, I know one of the popular things amongst uh, emerging church is, hey, 10 of us are a church, and we do good things for the community. And that's what we're about. We're about loving the community, doing all these great things. Except they miss the gospel. There's no gospel. We don't need the gospel because we are the gospel. I hear that all the time. Check. You're not the gospel. Your works aren't the gospel. Because you're no different than the atheist down the street is doing the same thing. So don't think that because you're doing good things, you're showing the gospel. You're not. You are fallen in sin that badly need God's grace. Okay, so think about that. Because you'll get this idea that people go, you know what, the church, I hate the church. But you're different. You're different. You know what that glorifies? You. And I've, I have heard people say that from time to time. And I know I've had my own leaders say that someone said that. It's like, yeah, that's fine, but what happened? You're okay. The church sucks. And that's basically what it is. There's no glory to God there. It's glory to you. It's when the church acts that God is glorified. It demonstrates God's power, his purpose, beauty to bring totally different people together, whether you're black, white, male, female, old, young, together for the purposes of God's glory. That's when the church makes a statement to God's glory, not just when you do. So it, what we do individually affects the church collectively, whether you like it or not. And if we fail to understand the collectivist nature of the church and see only as a place of personal blessing, we will struggle mightily with this verse. We will struggle mightily with this verse. Because think about it, even your individual witness, they go, oh, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm living with my boyfriend and girlfriend. They're like, mm, that's the church that I know. And they don't even care about it because they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend. That's the irony of the whole thing. But they do judge the church on that. So, big picture day, discipline of the church is reflective of a loving God who disciplines his people for his glory and their joy. The world is immediately going to see this as a control mechanism of the church. Oh, the church. They're always in people's business. You know, it's a bad thing. But if we're honest, the world's harsh discipline is often done on a revenge and punishment, not redemption. The goal of discipline in the church is redemption, never anything else. Never anything else. This Me Too movement is a harsh penalty of revenge. They're not interested in redemption. They're interested in revenge. And in some ways, you get it. Dr. Nassar, whatever his name is, from Michigan State, and the Olympic, Olympic guy that's, you know, going to jail now for the rest of his life, he deserves that. What he did to those women were horrible. When you listen to the woman, there was only one woman that I heard, and she was actually a Christian, that spoke differently than the rest, but the rest of them is very much revenge. It's very much, you did this, and I'm bitter, and I am hoping you rot in hell. That fact, one person literally said that. That's not redemption. The Me Too movement is not a redemptive movement. It is a confrontation movement. It's a purging movement, which is often needed, but it does not aim at redemption. But God is loving. He's just. And what he does aims at redemption always. We can look at church discipline, and all of a sudden in our minds we're thinking the scarlet letter. I don't know if you ever read that in high school or anything, where the adulterers, you know, where just the scarlet letter of adultery were placed on them. And so we have this weird view of, 
church discipline in, in Puritanism. That's not what this is about at all. But we do have responsibilities to one another. This isn't a place for your personal blessing. This is a corporate place that we are all accountable to one another. And it's impossible. I did a sermon on the one another's sermon, like a series on the one another's. How do you encourage one another? How do you exhort one another? How do you teach one another without being accountable in a body with one another? We have a mistaken idea that Christianity is me and God and the Holy Spirit and the Bible or something. That's not a reality. It's not close to a reality. I just taught in India two separate um, conferences. I just got back last Friday, Donna and I did, on the covenants. Go back to the Adamic covenants and realize that God created us to have a relationship with people that glorify him for his glory and their enjoyment. That's it. When he recreates us and does create the church, I've heard so many emergent guys go, Jesus never came to start anything. Well, try Matthew 16 on for, for size. I will build my church. He's not building a building. He's bringing his people in to corporately be a witness to the glory of God. And I could go off on multicultural understandings of that, where he brings the Jew-Gentile together. Why? Because the world can't do those things. Only the gospel can. See, the problem, we hear church discipline, we have images of the scarlet letter, but we have responsibilities to one another. Um, I'm not going to go into Matthew 7, 1, Matthew 18. It's how we relate to one another. We are called to confront sin, but you go, well, aren't we just judging other people? Our pastor today helps us think through some of these tough issues. And I, I want us to look at it. You get the situation. You know the situation. We go to the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians um, 5. It is actually reported there, there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So what we have is this dude is having sex with his stepmother, Okay? Now, you might be cringing now, but they were cringing then, too. And Corinth, the Corinth was probably the most sexually open culture of their time. I mean, they had more prostitutes than people, literally. Uh, the, the temple prostitution was huge. So there was a lot of things sexually immoral that was, hey, no big deal. But even the pagans here are going, something wrong with this. There's something seriously wrong with what's going on. Um, and that's a reality. And I think... Oftentimes, it's true of our own world. This sin was repulsive to a pagan world, a kind that is not tolerated among the pagans. Things like sexual abuse, pedophilia, things the church has been, has been guilty of and guilty of placing under the rug for the sake of celebrity pastors or large donations. The church is guilty of that. And the world doesn't need religion to figure out something is wrong there. And the church is guilty of some of the grossest sins sometimes. And they're okay as long as they're big donors, they're uh, big pastors, they bring in a lot of money, whatever it is. It's messed up. It's messed up. We're talking here, and I want you to see this clearly, clearly. Verse 2 says, and you are arrogant. We're going to get to that. 
Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And we're going to get back to this, but he, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in, in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world. Now, the situation is this. This is unrepentant sin. You go, well, my gosh, we all sin. Yes, we do. This is not sin. This is unrepentant sin. This is a person that's in their face going, I can do what I want to do. So screw you. I know, and, and being a pastor for years, I know uh, one, one time, actually it was a friend, I, I didn't encounter this particular one, but a person said God told her she needs to divorce her husband. I'll tell you what, he didn't. The scripture is clear. He didn't tell you that. But you just do it because it's convenient. It feels better, whatever it is. And it's, when the church confronts it, they're bad. Okay? And it's like, no, that's actually not a biblical thing to do. Unrepentant sin. We all sin. We should be repenting daily. We have heart sins. We have things in our minds that are wrong. We repent daily to to continue that relationship with a God that by his grace saved us. We all sin and prayerfully as we care enough to confront it ends in repentance not disdain. That's the goal. Now Paul says they're arrogant. Now in our culture, if you come up to somebody and go, you know what, you're in sin because of uh, your sexual sin, the world looks at that as you are arrogant. You are pathetic. You have no right to talk to me like that. Okay? Who are we to judge? So humility in this culture is we don't confront. But he calls them, he flips the script. Their arrogance is displayed by accepting and boasting in the sin. He completely flips what most people assume. Their boasting is a misunderstanding of grace. You can see this in Romans 6.1, Galatians 8.13, that we are not called by God's grace to continue to sin so grace may abound. Paul says, absolutely not. You can't boast and go, you know what, I'm saved, but here I am doing everything I want to do with my life, and God is secondary to that. He's saying that is an arrogant way to look at it. And so he's talking to the church. He's not talking to the individual. He says, church, you're arrogant. You are arrogant for the way that you're just completely overlooking some clear sins in your church. We're not saved by grace to open the the door of destructive behavior. We're called out of a life that glorifies God. Look at Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14 says, um, Who gave himself, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, you see the same idea. God brings, he, he redeems those that are lawless to purify himself for good works. It's when we understand grace that we understand our salvation. Grace compels us to love and humility, and grace inspires us to make God's name great. If we truly understand grace of what saves us, it's not that I'm saved by no work, so therefore I can do what I want. I'm saved by grace so I can finally have a relationship with God that's more important than anything else in my life. It compels me to love and humility. It compels me to desire to make God's name great. 
Thus, true, real love for God and humanity compels us to confront destructive sin. It compels us. And just think about it. Think about it from a very natural point of view, whether it be your children, good friends. If the world is confronting sin in their own way, they do understand that ultimately this behavior is destructive for the people they've had sex with or for the general public, whatever it is. If we have a friend, we have a whatever, and they're in sin, they're becoming alcoholics or their drug abuse, it is not loving to completely say, I, you know, I just want a relationship with them. I don't want to stop. You know, I, I just want to care about this right here. All you're doing is saying to your child, to your friends, I really don't love you enough because I need this relationship to make me feel good about myself. And you say, look, Matthew 18, I could go through it. Go to the person. They repent, you win a brother. They don't, you bring some more people. And the whole thing is repent, you win a brother. We're not talking about sin in general. We are all stuck in that. But this idea that we're not called to judge because Jesus in Matthew 7 says, do not judge others, where other places he clearly says, bring him before the church to judge them. He's not schizophrenic again. They're two different things. One is a self-righteous judgment that I don't really care about you. I'm just self-righteously judging you and not seeing the log in my eye. But when you truly love and graces change you to a humble humility and a love for people, you desire to see them at their best. And their best is when they relate to God in a way that brings a joy unspeakable. But when your friends are going down the tubes and they're depressed, there's probably a reason for that. But if you don't want to confront because you love them so much, I am telling you, you actually are hating them at that moment. And there's a way to confront. We're not talking about, I'm looking for other sins. Because hopefully, Matthew 7, 1, look at your own. This is not an issue. I'm good. I'm going to confront you. This is an issue. Is I know I am broken. I know by the grace of God that I, that I have a salvation that is so beautiful because of what Christ has done. And that compels me to love others enough to care. Sin saddens God and sin destroys those we love. Don't think it doesn't. It's destructive. It always is destructive. Personal sin can be extremely destructive. So what's his solution? Well, you see in 2, 7, and 13, 2 we read, uh, let him be removed, 7, um, cleanse out the old leaven. He gives an illustration of the leaven and the bread to make uh, be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Notice the motivation. Christ has been sacrificed, so, un- so purge sin in your midst. 13 says, God ju- um, yeah, God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. So the solution is confrontation. There's no, no, um, no action. So it's removal. And notice what he says, though. He says this in, in 2. He says, 
to be removed from among you, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced, listen to the word, judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, corporate, Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And you're going, whoa, that sounds crazy. To me, it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Really? What does that even mean? A couple things he notes. First of all, do it in assembly. And I've been, you know, I've, we've had situations in the past where let's just do it to the person and just, you know. But the issue of corporate, there is a reason for that. And the reason is we are one. We're not an individual. And you can actually see in action not only God's disdain of sin, but his desire for redemption in those situations. When people, not to understand everything, and sometimes maybe it's times to not bring it out, but sometimes it helps people realize God's redemptive nature. Um, I, a guy, he's an he's a executive officer, of, uh, whatever he is, director, I guess, of Acts 29. And he has, um, he, he, he's written books, Steve Timmis, he's written books called Total Church. Some of you guys are familiar with him. He does like house church type things. His house churches are pretty big though. Um, you know, like 100, 150 people kind of stuff. And he was talking about a time when they were, they knew that there was like four or five non-believers going to be coming that night because they were friends that were being invited and they were going to come. But it just happened to be a night they were going to deal with some sin in the, in the body. And they were like a little bit like, ah, maybe we shouldn't deal with it here because, you know, non-believers are going to think we're weird or whatever. But they decided, no, this is what we do. And he, he said that not only did they go ahead and do the church discipline there, but the, the, the non-believers after said, you know what, that's pretty interesting because I didn't think the church, I thought the church just put everything under the rug. I didn't think the church really dealt with anything. And they actually saw it as a positive, but what they got to see was the issues of the gospel. The gospel is acknowledging sin, repenting of sin, and trusting in God. 1 John 1, 9. If you if you repent of your sin, what is he? He's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, to forgive you. How many times? 70 times 70, according to, to Jesus. 7 times 70. This is not a thing like, I sin, now God hates me. I sin, now God. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. And when we repent, it, it's consistent with the gospel. And that's why it's, it can be such a beautiful thing. And he says this. He says, to deliver him, so remove from the community, deliver him over to Satan. But the reason is for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal of discipline is always redemption. Okay? Some, some quick verses. I'm not going to try to go through them. But Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15. Um, this is right in the midst of Jesus saying to bring him up to the the church and so on. Um, 1815 says, um, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's how it starts. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You have won him over. There's a redemptive element there. First um, Timothy 120, there's the, the idea of delivering him up to the flesh. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I want to go for it to show you a couple. First um, Timothy, one twenty, um, he says this: that um, um, among you are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
Now, the other verses, and I'll just give them to you, but they're very similar. Job 2, 4 through 6, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where he says that Satan, they're given over to Satan to, you know, like in 12, 7, Paul says, to buffer him of his potential arrogance. And, you know, again, we look at that, wow, that's, that seems super harsh. God does and can use Satan. But the issue here is not some weird thing. It's the idea is you, you, you give them over, and he's saying to Satan because it, Satan is willing and able to, to discipline in, in ways you don't want, okay? And what he's saying here is like, look, you're better off, it's more loving to give this person over. And this is not like a, a formal thing. This is not, this is, we are praying for this person. And we're praying this person comes back to Christ, whatever that takes, I remember John Piper, when his son walked away from the faith, Barnabas, talking about this very thing. He said for three or four years, they prayed with tears that their son would come back to Christ. He was a vowed atheist at that time. He left the faith and walked away. It was hard for his his parents who were in ministry to watch their son walk away from the faith. He said they prayed for him, and they prayed for him, and they prayed that whatever it took, and I'll tell you what, that is, as a parent, that is very difficult. Whatever it takes. I was in Iraq with a guy that it took years of prison, drug addiction, and being in prison for drug dealing for him to come to Christ. I don't want that for anybody. I don't want that for anybody. But I'll tell you what, he'll tell you, he'd stand up right here, right now, and tell you the joy he now has because of that in his life. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul's saying, look, they're unrepentant. Just give them over to Satan. Just allow whatever life happens because of their destructive behavior. And prayerfully, they'll come back. That's what Paul's saying. It's nothing more than that, nothing less. And discipline is an act of love. You look at Hebrews 12, where it talks about Jesus being the one that disciplines. Um, you know, Hebrews 12, I'm going to go through it real quick. He says this. He says, um, Consider him, Jesus, who endured the sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We hate this. Nobody likes to discipline. Nobody likes being disciplined. But the fact is, because of God's love, he will do that. It's a way of displaying his loving discipline to a dying world. You look at the Me Too movement. They're doing the same thing. They hate these passages, but they're doing the same thing, yet without redemption. They're not doing it out of love most often. The world wants discipline. It wants justice, but not for themselves. Those women want justice for those evil men but are not willing to look in their own hearts for their own sin. Because I'm okay, you're okay. I'm all good. Until someone sins against me. That person's evil. And that leads to the last deal, the problem we have with the church. 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, 
or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with one such. Here's the problem. We're not any different than the world. You did something to me, you deserve hell. I'm bitter now about you. See, the church is really good about defining sin on the outside. This is not what Paul's talking about. Church is great about defining sin that's on the outside of the church. We're great about Prop 8s and anti-homosexual laws and all these things. We're great about that. But 99% of the people in your pew aren't dealing with that. Because if you preach that, they wouldn't be sitting in your pew. So church people, religious people, are so good about pointing out sin of others. But they can't deal with their own sin. And that's why this passage is so hard. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that by the Spirit of find God again. There's a redemptive element here, and we are just as guilty as any sexually immoral person in the world. But we have a self-righteousness for other people's sins that we can't see our own. So the church is not a safe place for the sexually immoral even though most likely half the people in the church are sexually immoral. But since it's a personal sin and you don't know about it, don't worry about it. No one's going to deal with my sin. But make sure you deal with someone else's. So you can be, is it safe to go into your small groups and go, you know what, I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling in the sexual arena. You know, I'm I'm sure most of you are pretty loving and so on. You, You kind of accept them, but it's like, oh, yeah, that's a really bad sin. We'll be praying for you. Let me go tell somebody about your sin. That's because I'm a gospel. You know, seriously. Oh, that's not bad, right? As long as I go- I'm gossip, that's okay. But those bad people, sinners, we should do something about those people. And I can could, I could throw out a thousand illustrations here of the reality of the church and how it is a situation right now with a transgender person that a particular church would not accept them because the person is transgender. I don't know how screwed up you have to be to get there as a church, but apparently there's a church that is. <laughs> and that's the reality. So we're really good about keeping them transgenders out and cre- keeping the homosexuals out, and even those people that are serial sexual people, because that's not me. And Paul's going, look, I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about you inside this church that corporately can't deal with the sins of this church. How in the world can you sign Prop 8? How in the world, and that's California Prop, but um, can you do this when you can't even deal with your own sin in your own church? And that's what the world sees. The world sees that these pastors are against homosexuality while they're having an affair with somebody, or they're stuck in pornography, or whatever it is. Because that's what we do as a church. And Paul says, you are arrogant. You are arrogant. The church is too often known for its stances against sin outside the church and fails to deal with the sin that everyone knows is in the four walls. So, not sure how you feel about this sermon, but that's the way it is from my point of view. So, and I'm getting on a plane later on, and I feel good about that. <laughs> um, discipline is never fun. We didn't like doing it with our children. Our children certainly didn't like it, okay? Um, Discipline is never fun, but it's needed for growth. 
So what does it look like? In closing, discipline is done in love and compassion. This is true with children, okay? If you're a parent, you understand this. If you're acting out because a child is really annoying you, okay, that is not discipline. That is, I am a little ticked off right now and you're bothering me, okay? That is not caring about the heart of the child. That is just stop it or you go into your room or whatever else you do as discipline around here. So discipline is done in love and compassion. And discipline is done in order to preserve the name of God. And I believe this is true of our children too. I think this all works for children. I want my children to be honoring to God. I want them to grow to a love of God. So discipline is done in order to show that, that there's, a, there's a sense that this is destructive behavior. Discipline also demonstrates both God's love and justice. The cross is a discipline act. It's the wrath of God, where we see both the love of God and the wrath of God and the justice of God all coming together. So when we discipline, it's an act of love and the justice and righteousness of God. It reflects the cross of Jesus. Discipline that changes the heart, not just the behavior. A lot of our children's discipline is just stop it. If you can stop the behavior, we're good. But we're not shepherding a child's heart to loving God and loving others. And lastly, discipline is done to foster redemption and restored relationships. It's true of parents. The goal of discipline is for them to come to a place of repentance and then the, the relationship is restored. My daughter's here, so I'm not going to tell too many stories. But uh, <laughs> um, I got to tell this one, Chris. I'm sorry. But it's... Uh, Chris is, Chris is a very, very easy child, um, except for when she was really little. But no, <laughs> uh, but no, she really, she really was. Um, but the, 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 there was a funny one one day, and Donna actually, she's going to tell you I told it wrong. I don't care because it's my story, and um, it, I get the point across. But bottom line, as little kids will do at three, four, whatever, is they're going to fight with each other. And so we, that's something we just didn't allow. I mean, that was something we wanted to be best friends. They're best friends. You say that? That's very true, right? Loves her brother, brother loves her. That was a goal of parenting. That was one of the goals. So whatever was going on, um, Justin was being Justin, most likely knocking on her door to, I want to get in, I want to get in, open the door. You know, it's like, literally, it's like Kramer. I mean, seriously, Justin can't be alone for two seconds, and he was always wanting to be around somebody, so he's probably annoying the crud out of Krista, most likely. So this was all Justin's fault, and uh, he's not here. And so, uh, you know, and so... Donna got them together, and it's like, you know, at this point, there's got to be a little bit of repentance, a hugging, and that kind of stuff. So Krista complied with that very greatly. She went up to Justin, hugged him, and she goes, I'm sorry you're a jerk. You know, so that was, uh, that was how she repented of her sin, of not uh, forgiving him. So that's a little different than we're called to. We are called to love enough to care, but love enough to work that person towards redemption, because that is what will bring them to not only growth in Christ, but to a joy that God has called us to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And um, we just just thank you that um, our salvation is so great. And in and around those verses, Lord, we're truly that you have paid the penalty. Um, you've been sacrificed, Lord. And because of that, that in your grace, Lord, that we can act in grace, we can act in love, and love includes justice. It includes this. When the world knows it, they just don't like your justice. I just pray, Lord, that we're, we're godly people and aren't looking for other people's sins, but, Lord, that we confront and we see something destroying our friends, our family, Lord, because we love them. And uh, we thank you for that. Thank you for the grace you've bestowed on us that we can literally repent 
of our sins. And seven times seventy, Lord, you are there to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's because of what Jesus did. I pray we understand grace to a place that develops our heart and our love for others, love for you, love for others in such a way that we're that Harambe or any church that we're part of is a loving church that cares. That cares about redemption. It cares about the individual, not just the the harshness that some churches use. Just praise for